From the Maximum Fun Network, this is the Memory Palace. I'm Nate DeMeo. The case went like this. A woman named Jenny Hunger was working as a housekeeper at one of the apartments at 615 Fifth Avenue in Manhattan. It was a prestigious address even then in 1909. When the building went up just a few years before, the New York Times dedicated nearly a full page ooing over its scale, awing over its many amenities, its tiled fireplace, its porcelain tubs, and its swift and smooth elevator, trimmed in the finest mahogany, leaving Jenny Hunger in charge of keeping 10 rooms in order, including a music room, a library, a steam room, and her own quarters, a modest but charming space in the back with a view of St. Patrick's Cathedral the next-door neighbor to the apartments at 615 Fifth Avenue. Her boss was a Mr. Arthur Kemp. He had inherited the apartment from his father, who was in fact the developer of the building. As such, he had one of the finest units on a high floor. Mr. Kemp was a darling of the society pages, thanks in large part to his recent marriage to a renowned beauty, whose engagement portrait made a splash at a well-attended reception for the artist A.A. Anderson, a painter you've totally never heard of, but certainly would have if you happened to be an enthusiast of the genre of society girl engagement portraiture at the turn of the last century. On the evening of Monday, March 22nd, Mrs. Hunger, the maid, was making her final rounds through the apartment. The Kemps were away. And as she moved through the shadows cast by the whiffling gaslight and padded across the marble floors that shone in the moonlight, past the black spire of St. Patrick's, looming in silhouette beyond the windows, nothing appeared to be amiss. But when she came back to the master bedroom, she gasped. Within moments, she was downstairs in the office of the manager, heart racing as she told him about the stolen jewelry. The manager, a Mr. F.W. Tyron, was alarmed. This wasn't the first theft to have hit 615 Fifth Avenue. Mr. Tyron had his suspicions. The building was secure. The exterior would be nearly impossible to scale. It had to be an inside job. But he trusted the doorman. And it certainly wasn't that nice Jenny Hunger. It could only be the elevator operator. A Mr. Charles Johnson. The elevator man had the run of the building and knew when people came in and out. It should be noted that Mr. Johnson was African-American, or at least it should be noted that Mr. Tyron noted that. And for a week, he kept an eye on the man, but nothing, nothing went missing. There was nothing suspicious which in itself seems suspicious. So Tyron called in a detective, a Pinkerton named Joe Parisi, and the two men concocted a plan. The following Sunday, March 29th, around 8 p.m., Mrs. Hunger let the detective in through the back door of Mr. Kemp's apartment, and then she left through the front door. She buzzed for the elevator, smiled nervously at Mr. Johnson as he opened the gate. And then on the ride down, she mentioned as casually as she could manage that she was heading out for the evening. She didn't expect to be back until late. 
Meanwhile, in the apartment, the detective checked the locks, shut all the windows and doors, snuffed out all of the lights, and waited in the darkness. There was a noise, a key in the back door, maybe, and then there were footsteps. He pressed himself into the wall in the dark hallway. The footsteps were in the kitchen, and then closer, in the dining room, and then right there in the hall. He could see a dark figure in the shadows, but the figure didn't seem to see him. It kept walking right toward him. He held his breath, and the figure passed right by, just missing stepping on his toes. The detective didn't move, not yet. He waited, wanted to catch him with the goods, and he listened as the intruder moved slowly from room to room, working deliberately. The detective slid his back along the wall, stepping quietly across the floor. And then he froze. The man was coming back down the hall. Throw your hands up! The detective shouted. And the man, Charles Johnson, the elevator operator, threw up his hands. The detective would later say that Johnson didn't argue at all, just said, you caught me here, I give up, or something like that, and agreed to go quietly when he was told he was going to be brought down to the superintendent's office, and then handed over to the police. In fact, he even led Detective Parisi to the elevator, said they might as well ride down. So the detective and the elevator man got to the lift, and Mr. Johnson pulled the rope, and down they went. But three floors into the ride, Johnson grabbed him, one hand on his throat, the other going for his pistol. And the elevator plunged, racing as they fought for the gun. Seventh floor, sixth floor, fifth, fists flying, clawing, close quarters, fourth, third, and bang! And off flew a finger from the detective's left hand. The pistol dropped, lay on the blood-spattered floor. The detective reached down, and the elevator man reached up, grabbed the rope, and up they shot again, sending the men caroming against the walls, against each other, as the elevator tore higher. They grappled, elbows and knees, and the Pinkerton squeezed the trigger with one of his remaining fingers. Bang, bang, bang. But they were still at it when they hit the top and Johnson, one hand still on the rope, the other fighting for the gun, reversed the car, sent it careening back down, and sent the detective to his knees. The elevator men pounced as they plummeted, but two more shots, and he fell back, and was dead before they hit the ground floor. That's the story the detective told the New York Police Department and the New York Times while he was recovering in a hospital bed after winning the fight and losing the finger. He was at the time technically under arrest, but the cops cleared him of the charges later that night. They poked around in the apartment. It seemed like a story checked out. But reading it in the article published the next morning under the headline, 
killed by detective in racing elevator? There's some questions. Johnson had lots of keys and a ring in his pocket, but none of them fit the Kemp's door. Jenny Hunger later claimed that she found a window open near the fire escape, and that must have been how Johnson had gotten in. But the cops had already swept the place at that point. Didn't find any evidence of a break-in. The coroner did say there was a struggle, though. At least one that ended on the third floor, where Johnson's body spilled out into the hallway. But there was no jewelry. For as much as the detective said he was waiting to catch the man with the goods on him, there were no goods on him. Just a bullet hole above the eye, and one above his heart. And that's that. No follow-up article. No trial records, of course. Just the story of a nine-fingered detective, Mr. Tyron, the building manager, and a maid named Jenny Hunger, which totally sounds like a criminal alias, by the way. Maybe Johnson was set up. We can't know. We can dig through the records, through some secondhand sources. I can trace a connection between Arthur Kemp, his dead father, and Tyron, who happened to be the nephew of Kemp's mother and draw up a notion about the resentment that builds up when you're left to deal with the broken toilets and petty tenant complaints of your layabout cousin who hasn't worked a day in his life. Maybe you get your friend Jenny to swipe some jewelry. Maybe you pin it on the black guy. But we can't know. That is the nature of cold cases. And of mysteries. And of history. Sometimes the facts don't all add up. Sometimes they don't mean what you think. You piece some facts together. You tell the story you can. Sometimes because it demands to be told. Sometimes because there's some injustice that still needs to be witnessed. Sometimes because the story illuminates some resonant, still relevant truth. Sometimes because it's about a freaking shootout in an elevator. 